You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. There is a constant danger for all of us when we read portions of the Bible that are particularly familiar. The danger comes in that when we read things that are familiar, we tend to rush through them. We go through it without thinking carefully about it. We're used to this. We know the terrain. We know the territory. We know our way around. We know what these texts are about. So we just keep on going, and we don't pause, or we're less likely to pause in familiar territory and ask the Spirit, what do you have for us here in these texts today? It's easy to miss what God has for us when we are on familiar territory, and the Gospels are full of texts like that, aren't they? And today we have Two of them, two generally familiar passages in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark. One Jesus calms a storm, and the other he casts out demons. And we come to these texts, and we think we know basically what's going on here. Jesus is embodying some sort of supernatural power. It looks like he's living into his fully divine identity. After all, he is The Word made flesh. He's God in in a human body. He's fully divine. And as God, fully divine, He commands the winds and the waves. He commands demons. And they obey Him. And they have to obey Him because Jesus is God. And we tend to think that that's primarily what these texts are about. And they are about that. But maybe they're not only about that. And if we rush through, thinking we know what's going on, we make ourselves liable to the danger of familiarity. And there are other questions that the gospel writer wants us to deal with. So what are the questions that come up In this instance, as we read through this passage together, we will discover that Mark wants us to ask the question whether Jesus is our first choice or last resort. The bottom line is a question today. What if Jesus were our first choice instead of our last resort? That's what the disciples have to discover. And that becomes clear to us as we think about these passages in their larger context. Now, we've been working through the parables, haven't we? We spent a couple of weeks looking at some of the different stories that Jesus teaches. And one of the things that comes up again and again in the parables, and it's the very last thing mentioned by Mark before they get on the boat, is that Jesus treats his disciples differently than he treats the crowds. 
Mark has just told us, remember, we want to look at this passage in the flow of context. So the context is the parables. And he's just told us, verse 33, chapter 4, verse 33, with many such parables Jesus spoke the word to them, right? Mustard seed, lamp under a bushel, guy goes out in the field and throws some seed around. With many such parables Jesus spoke the word to the disciples as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them except in parables. That's the crowds. But he explained everything in private to his disciples. So these guys, right, they're in ministry with Jesus. They've been following him around for some time now. They're there when he teaches the crowds. And, but they know later on, after everybody, after the crowds have dispersed and people have gone home, they're going to get the inside story. They are his inner circle. They have access to him that no one else has. Everybody else gets the parables. Everybody else gets these stories, these confusing, strange, like you know, Jesus tells parables and then quotes Isaiah's, I'm telling parables so they'll look and look and not see. And people struggle to understand what's going on there. But the disciples, they get the explanation. They get the inside story. They get clarity on what Jesus is up to in the kingdom. And then they get on a boat and sail into a storm. Now before the parables are told, the disciples have again have access that other people don't have access. All the way back in chapter 1, when Jesus first begins to heal people, he does it in Peter's house. Later on, verse, at the end of chapter 1, the disciples come to Jesus. He's been away praying. In verse 37 of chapter 1, they find him and they say to him, everyone is searching for you. Now what's striking, everyone is searching for Jesus. The disciples know where to find him. Again, they have privileged access. They are his inner circle. In chapter 2, when Jesus begins eating with sinners, the Pharisees, the power players, these Important people come through the disciples to get to Jesus. It's, it's like they've become his entourage. You don't go straight. It's kind of a, our people will call your people. They're his people. They, at least that's what they think. And now all of a sudden, they're with Jesus. They're there when he's healed. They heal, he heals people in their houses. Everybody else can't find him, but they know where to find him. And now, the Pharisees. Ha! Come through them to get to Jesus. And you can imagine how their vision of themselves is probably going up here. Everybody wants him. They have access that no one else has. People come through them to get to Jesus. And as the Gospel of Mark continues, this just gets worse and worse and worse for the disciples. All the way into chapter 9... When John comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, Jesus, you're going to be so proud. There was this other guy casting out demons in your name, and we made him stop because he doesn't follow us. And you can almost just see the <laughs> frustration, perhaps, the surprise on Jesus' face. Just the, really? Is that what you've done? 
Jesus says, don't stop him. No one who does a deed of power in my name will soon be afterward able to speak evil of me. And you can see how John just, he, he got this mixed up because it's not really about following the disciples. It's about following Jesus. We made him stop because he wasn't following us as if this is really about them. And so you can see this, this growth here all the way through the gospel that they really struggle to deal with. Is they have privileged access. They know the inside story. And they get to the point of thinking, hey, if you're not a part of our group, you don't really know what this is about. And you don't need to be doing the kind of things that we're doing. And Jesus rebukes them. They never get it until the whole thing comes to a climax with the cross. They think it's about access and power and prestige, and they are excited that they're riding Jesus' coattails to those places. And then he winds up on a cross, and they jet. Because they have not yet come to understand that the ministry of Jesus in the kingdom of God is not about them. It's about Jesus and the life that he offers them. And as long as they think they're in control, and Jesus is more of kind of a, hey, we'll call on this guy when we need him, last resort, as long as they think they're in control, they have not come to understand what it means for Jesus to be king in the kingdom of God. And the cross is the place where he is revealed to be the king. The place where his body is broken and his blood is shed. The place where he provides redemption. The cross that precedes the crown. Where Jesus brings those broken disciples into new, redeemed, reconciled communion with the Father. Only then do they really begin to learn what it means to follow Jesus. These guys are close to Jesus all the way through the story. They think it's a privileged position doesn't really mean they're special. It does apparently mean they need some extra help. What if being closer to Jesus doesn't mean we're special? What if it just means we have more issues? So that's the big picture. When they get on the boat with Jesus, they head across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're leaving familiar territory, they're leaving sacred territory and going to Gentile territory outside of the sacred Holy Land space. And they get in a boat, and Mark tells us they leave the crowds behind. So this is, in some ways, inner circle time, isn't it? We've left the crowds, we've got Jesus in the boat, special access we're his inner circle. Though Mark does tell us there are other boats around. So you've got Jesus and his fishermen group in his boat. 
Then you get some other boats with other fishermen guys in it. So the crowds have been left behind, but now all of their colleagues get to see their special access to Jesus that nobody else has. And then Mark tells us a great windstorm arose. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for its severity of storms. I've never been there, but I've read that if you actually show up in the parking lot, there are warning signs, because the boats are not the only thing in danger. If you park too close to the water and a big storm blows in out of nowhere, your car will be swamped when you get back. So it's not a safe place. The storms come in quickly and they go away quickly. And more than that, more than just the physical danger of the Sea of Galilee, you need to understand that the sea functioned symbolically for ancient Jewish people. If you think about the Old Testament and when the sea is described, it's never really a positive thing. Think about the Exodus. The people of Israel are brought out of slavery in in Egypt, hailed by mighty acts of their God's power. They're set free. They come through the wilderness. When the Egyptians do decide to follow them, they chase them down until they get to the Red Sea. And it is the sea that stands between them and their freedom. They've got an Egyptian army behind them, coming to enslave them once again in a sea in front of them. It's slavery or drowning. Take your pick. The sea represents opposition, antagonism, death. They can't get by it until Yahweh, their God, brings in a wind from the east and pushes the water back so that they can go through. The sea symbolizes Death, God delivers them through that barrier. The sea was also associated with the demonic in the first century for Jewish people. Notice in the next story, when the demons go out of the guy and into the pigs, where do the pigs go? Into the sea. They're going home. Remember in Revelation, where one of the beasts comes from, he comes from the sea. Remember in the book of Daniel, when all of these oppressive, opposing beasts come, they come out of the sea. The sea was associated with the demonic, with powers of opposition, with all of the dark forces in the world. And it's not really a surprise, because if you live on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and the storms come in out of nowhere, and it's dangerous for you, and it's dark, and it's scary, and if you're in a boat when it happens, you may not survive. No surprise that the sea comes to symbolize opposition, oppression, slavery, demonic power, all of those things. Remember in the Revelation also, when God does His work of new creation, we are told very briefly at the beginning of Revelation 21, the sea is no more. Everything evil and opposed to the flourishing of the people of God is withdrawn from this new creation. So the disciples are on the sea when the storm comes up. 
And all of that is swirling. And they've been there before. They're not amateurs. They're fishermen. They know what it's like. But this storm is particularly strong. We are told in verse 37, the boat is already being swamped. That means, <laughs> you know, they're bailing water, but it ain't working. There's water coming up in the boat. It's sinking. It's happening. And they're trying. And Jesus, we are told, is asleep. He's in the back. Now, this is strange. And we might think, how is he asleep? In the middle of a storm. If you've ever been on a boat in a storm, I doubt you were taking a nap. If you were taking a nap on a boat in a storm, you probably woke up. And maybe you think, well, this is about his divinity, right? Jesus is God. He can, the storm doesn't bother him. He can sleep. It is about how Jesus is God. All through the Old Testament, it's God who silences the sea. It's God who calms the waves. In fact, if you just read through the Psalms, you'll see this come up again and again. Psalm 65, verse 7. You silence the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. God is the one who does that. Psalm 89, verse 9. You, O God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 28 and 29. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. So when Mark portrays Jesus as sleeping in the middle of the storm, and then He wakes up and calms the storm, yes, Jesus is embodying the power that is attributed to God all through the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. That's not all, is it? That can't be it. Because, after all, <laughs> a good God doesn't go to sleep on His people, right? I mean, remember Elijah, the prophets of Baal, when he's making fun of them, and he says some pretty serious, I mean, he, he's intense. And one of the things he says is, what, is your God asleep? Can't He show up and help you out? He must be taking a nap! Because everybody knows real gods don't slumber or sleep. So why is Jesus asleep in the back of the boat? With a, I mean, it's like he's snoring or something and the water is in his face. The boat is being swamped and they're going crazy and, they don't, and he's back there and they finally wake him up. And notice they don't ask for help when they wake him up. They still don't ask for help. They just ask him if he cares. Don't you care that we are perishing? And you're thinking, what's going on here? I mean, after all, they've seen him heal people. Peter's mother-in-law. Man with a withered hand. They've seen him do these signs and wonders. But they still don't ask him for help. And you wonder maybe if part of the problem is those other boats. <laughs> Are we less likely to ask Jesus for help and yield control to Him when people are watching? Are we going to look weak? Are we going to look like we don't know what we're doing? Are we going to look frail if we can't command the situation? Are they worried that their 
colleagues are going to come up to them in the morning if they survive and say, we saw you ask that carpenter for help when the storm was going so strong. Couldn't you handle a little storm? Were they embarrassed of him? They never ask for help. They want to be in control, and Jesus is a last resort all the way through. And I wonder if he just sits back and waits instead of jumping up and just... I mean, if the, whole, if the only point were that Jesus is God, and he is, then we could have just had the storm and he could have stood up and said, peace be still, and it would have been over. It's good. He did what the psalm says Yahweh does. He must be Yahweh in the body. Point made. But that's not all that happens, is it? Instead, you've got these other boats, you've got their friends and their colleagues and people who know them all the way through, and you've got Jesus just chilling in the back of the boat, taking a nap like no big deal, and you've got the disciples totally flipping out, trying to get the water out of the boat, and finally they come to Jesus and they grab him like, don't you even give her care about what's going on here? And only then, only when they come to him, only when they realize they do not have control. Only when they seek Him out. Only then does He step in to intervene. I wonder if He waits. I think this is what's happening. I think He waits on purpose. Because the thing they need to discover is that He cannot be their last resort. It's not... Peter and James and John and the other guys, we're good, we're in control, everything's great. And if it gets really, really rough, like, like last option, call the carpenter. He can help. Jesus says, doesn't work that way, guys. Stands up, peace be still, the wind and waves calm, and perhaps those psalms begin to come through their mind. You still the raging storm. You calm the waves, O oh God. And then he looks at them and he says, <laughs> and I wonder how many times Jesus has looked at us and said these very words. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid not only of the storm, but about what the guys in the other boats are going to think about you? Why are you afraid? Don't you trust me? And this, friends, is one of the places where we discover like faith is a lot bigger deal than showing up in church and saying a creed or singing a song. This is not... Check, I love Jesus. Check, I obeyed the Ten Commandments. Check. This is not what Christian faith is. Jesus is saying, don't you trust me? And if you trust me, why did you wait so long to come to me? Why didn't you, if you trust me, why didn't you come to me first instead of waiting till the boat was halfway sunk? Don't you trust me? You've seen my power. You've seen the kingdom coming. You've heard my preaching. You get the explanation. All of it. You know that God is at work. You've seen the power. Don't you trust me? Why don't you trust me? And I wonder, friends, like 
often and we can't even hear it because we're so consumed with just our reputation or being in control or our comfort or whatever it is and Jesus is saying, don't you trust me. Don't you trust me. I mean, think about our days. Think about the way we organize our time. I get up in the morning. Am I offering my day to the Lord Jesus Christ first thing? Or are those social media notifications just screaming for my attention? Did you know that Facebook, the studies have shown, have trained us to respond to little red dots. Like psychologically, if there's a little red dot, we just can't resist it. That notification pops up there at the top of the screen. Red dot, little three in it. Ooh, I wonder what somebody said about my post. Click. We're addicted to that stuff. We are addicted to that stuff. So do we get up? And say, so, you know what, Jesus, I want to orient my day around you. I want, to hear what you. I want to offer you control, all of these things first. Or do we get up and go do something else? See what our email says. What's on the calendar for today? Got to get the kids off to school. Got to get breakfast together. Oh, we're running late. No time for that. Let's. But then when a crisis comes, <laughs> that's when we go to Jesus. And I wonder if Mark is not asking us the question, is Jesus your first choice or your last resort? Do you only give him control when you've lost it completely? Or do you offer him control at the beginning? First thing. The next story, again, is familiar. If they didn't learn that they were not in control in the boat, they learn it on the other side of the sea. They're outside of Jewish territory. They're in Gentile territory. You know this because there are pigs. <laughs> Good Jewish boys don't keep pigs. Bad stuff there, right? You don't, you don't, not just a few, 2,000 pigs. And there's a tombstone. And if you know anything about good Jewish boys, like graveyards, tombstones, dead bodies, that means you're unclean. And not just pigs and tombs, demons. This is a bad place. Jesus is taking these guys on a field trip, and the whole thing is designed to make them uneasy and help them to see you are not in control of your life. You may think you are. You may put on a good show when your friends are watching, but you are not in control. And the sooner you realize it, Peter, James, John, and us, <laughs> the better. The sooner you realize it, the better. So what happens? They go to the other side of the sea, country of the Gerasenes. They get out of the boat, and immediately, like, I mean, this is... They're over there stepping out of the boat trying to tie it to the shore and all of a sudden, immediately, this guy runs up to him and he's not just any guy. He's shouting, he's bloody, and he's naked. Now, I don't know the last time a bloody, shouting, naked guy ran up to you when you were tying up your boat, 
But if you remember when that happened, you know it's unsettling. I mean, look at this. Just let the, like, don't rush through this. Don't go, I've read this before. I know what's going on. Don't succumb to the danger of familiarity. Slow down and see what's happening here. He stepped out of the boat. Immediately a man runs out of the Oh, I forgot that. They're in a graveyard. Bloody naked screaming guy who's coming out of the tombs. With a demon. An unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him. Not only is he naked, bloody, and screaming, he has superhuman strength. They tied him up, put shackles on him, and he just breaks out of them all the time. And People don't know what to do with him and they just hope he stays out there with the tombs because they're not going out there. They'll stay home. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him. Do you catch that? No one can control this guy. No one. The disciples have to learn they are not in control. Jesus cannot be a last resort when they, you know, we're good, we got it, we'll take care of this, we'll call you if we need you, Jesus. No, they have got to learn they are not in control. No one can restrain this guy, not even with a chain. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's always howling. You ever met a howling person? He howls and bruises himself with stones. Jesus saw him from a distance. He ran and bowed before him again. Who is in control? Not Peter, not John, not Thaddeus, Jesus. The bloody, naked, screaming, howling, bruised, tombstone living guy bows before King Jesus. If there were ever a moment where they have to discover that Jesus has to be number one, orienting, like all of life oriented around him, no matter what's going on, constant, like we need him, we can't handle it. This series of events is designed in the loving providence of God to teach them that reality. They cannot handle it, and neither can we. When we get in trouble, is Jesus a first choice or a last resort? When we find ourselves day to day, is Jesus number one or is he a last resort? How do I think about my identity? How do I respond to him? We get some responses in this text, don't we? Jesus cast the demons out of the guy. You know the story. It's familiar after all. They go into some pigs, right? Because unclean spirits belong in unclean animals. 2,000 pigs run off into the sea and die because demons live in the sea, right? And then the people, the swine herds are, imagine how much, they're just watching dollar signs run off into the sea. Imagine how much value 2,000 pigs are worth. So they're not happy with Jesus, so they go back to town, so they bring back all the people from the city, and they come to see what's happened. They see that Jesus has ministered healing and redemption to the demon-possessed guy. That's scary, because after all, if he can control that guy who we can't control, do we really want to mess with him? 
They were afraid, we are told. They don't, they don't trust him. They are afraid and unhappy about the lost pigs. And so they just tell Jesus, get out of town. We don't want you around here. Verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. So I think there's two responses here, aren't there? There's two things going on. You can either say, all right, Jesus, you are clearly in control of the situation when demons bow down to you, when the wind and the waves obey you. You are embodying the character and power and glory and beauty of the Most High God. And you've come to us, and you've offered your life to us, and you've brought us to yourself for fellowship and teaching and care and ministry. Will we trust? Will we trust you? Or will we beg you to leave? And I think, friends, most of us, you know, if we're tuning into church, we're, you know, most of us probably aren't going, Jesus, just mind your own business. But as the saying goes, actions speak louder than words. And the question is, do we live our lives saying, Jesus, mind your own business? I got this. I'm good. One of the ways is to think about the way we think of, our, of ourselves, our identity. So I think of myself primarily as a parent, a pastor, a professional. I think of myself primarily in terms of my entertainment. I'm a fan of this team. Or is my fundamental identity, my fundamental thing that shapes everything else, is it oriented on Jesus? I belong to Him. I'm a follower of Jesus. Everything I have is Him. My whole life, my whole being, all the hours in my day, Everything is His. These guys have been holding things back. They have made Jesus a last resort. They love the fame. They love the prestige. They love it that people come through them to get to Him. They love getting the inside explanation. They love the inside scoop. They love all of that. What they don't want is to offer him control. And what he does is he takes them to places where they must. And I wonder, friends, if we're not in one of those places right now. Most of us have never experienced a world like we're experiencing right now. We've seen crises before. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about reactions to the pandemic. Every day I read reports that conflict. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. It's okay to go here, it's not okay to go here. You can do this. It doesn't matter whether you do that or not. Every day. And we are in so many people. Just I hear people say, I just feel confused. I think it's okay. I don't know. Let's wait and see. And I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting in the back of the boat just waiting for us to come saying, do you trust me yet? Are you willing 
Are you willing to surrender control? Not just of your life, but of the church, of the world. Do we only go to him when he's the last resort? We don't know what to do, Jesus. Can you help? We'll never, never, never come into his fullness if he's only ever our last resort. If we slide into that pattern of behavior, I got this. We know what to do. We have a plan. We execute the plan. We've done the research. We've got the training. Why are you still afraid? Don't you trust me? That's the invitation, isn't it? Jesus himself offers it. Don't you trust me? can say with certainty that many of us, wherever we are in our walk with Jesus, maybe it's around that first step, maybe we haven't actually started that walk with Jesus, maybe we've been walking with Jesus for a long, the disciples have been walking with Jesus for a while by the time we get to this demoniac thing. The Jesus question is the same, whether it's I've never met you before, Jesus, or whether we've been walking together for a long time. His question is, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And if you trust me, then that will be the consistent, abiding, orienting reality of your life. I will not be your last resort. Jesus will not be a last resort. The king of the universe enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, can never be our last resort. He can only be our sovereign, redeeming Lord of all. Do You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.